Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the brand new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, May 14th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director, and I'm joined by your other host, the amazing Liz Pollack, our vice president. Hey, Liz. Hi, everyone. On this week's episode, we're talking about design education at colleges and universities. We'll have a very special guest co-host, my friend and co-founder of the Design Museum, Derek Cassio. And right at the top, we have some news here. He's officially the new chair for the Industrial Design Department at Wentworth Institute of Technology. Then, Liz, Derek, and I will interview Jason Schutbach, the director of the design school at Arizona State University. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Since we're talking about education today, I thought it would be great to highlight one of our education programs. It's called Design Together. When COVID-19 hit and the stay-at-home order went into effect, we sadly had to cancel our after-school design program in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But we still wanted to do something for kids and parents so that they could learn and practice design at home. So we launched Design Together as a collection of design activities, resources, and challenges for all ages. You can check them out on our website or download the lesson plans. Some of the Design Together activities involve designing a chair, thinking about nature and biomimicry, and even creating a journey map. Check them all out and more at designmuseumeverywhere.org. I also wanted to mention a really cool Design Museum Live virtual event we have coming up on May 26th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Most of us are sheltering in place and we're facing all kinds of challenges. And it's, you know, it's easy to lose focus on, you know, our own wellness. And so our council member, Emily Klein, she introduced me to Elizabeth Markle. She's a PhD psychologist and co-founder of Open Source Wellness. That's a new model for improving personal and community health. Here's a clip from Elizabeth explaining their concept. As a clinical psychologist working in healthcare, I found that doctors were constantly telling patients the same four things, whether they had diabetes, obesity, depression, or any number of other conditions. Move your body more eat better foods, reduce your stress, get some social support and connection in your life. The funny part is that they would make these behavioral prescriptions and then say something like, good luck with that, I'll see you in six months. How ridiculous would it be if a doctor said, you're gonna need antibiotics, good luck finding them, I'll see you in six months. So on May 26th, Elizabeth and her co-founder, another PhD psychologist named Benjamin Emmert Aronson, will present about this new kind of a behavioral pharmacy, a delivery system for health behavior change. You can get tickets on our website, and as always, it's free for our members. On to this week's main topic, design education. With pretty much every student in the world out of school, we thought it would be a good moment to talk about the state of design education at colleges and universities. And think about how design can maybe be taught remotely and, if we're lucky, get into the future of how we train the next generation of designers. But before we look into the future, let's take a look back. Liz and I both went to design school, her for architecture and me for industrial design. So Liz, what do you remember most from architecture school? Ah, oh, such a good question. I, uh, I remember being in studio. I was always, always in studio. I was always building something, drawing something, making something. Uh, it was just a very hands-on time and very time intensive. Like I was always there. Yeah. Yep. I think that's the same for me too. I just remember being in studio into the wee hours of the night working on projects. Uh, but I also remember 
learning a ton, learning amazing tools, and uh, you know having a bunch of mentors uh, that helped me get internships and and get jobs. But yeah, studio seems to be the thing on our minds. Uh, so here, yeah, here to help us dig into design education is a very special guest. He holds a special place in our hearts at the Design Museum. He is our co-founder. Derek and I started the museum together back in 2009, just two 20-somethings with a dream and just too naive to know that we should stop. <laughs> uh, here is a clip from Derek's recent sketch event with us where he taught people how to draw objects. So the first thing I want to bring up is why do we draw, right? That's, that's I think, a, a very important question um, to ask. You know, we've been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And at the end of the day, the, the main reason that we draw is to communicate, right? We're, we're drawing to solve problems. We're drawing to take a bunch of disparate ideas and mix them all together and put them out there uh, so that we can all be on the same page. Derek Cassio, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Uh, well, first, Derek... Congrats on becoming the department chair of industrial design at Wentworth. That is so exciting Thank and you incredibly well-deserved. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been uh, a pretty wild ride. Um, you know, I'm stepping into some very big shoes left by Sam Montague, who will be returning back to faculty, which is great because uh, I was afraid we, we might lose that. But it's, um, it's going to be a nice transition, and I think we're going to end up being able to do a lot more in the future, we've we've been working on some big plans for the program, so I'm I'm excited about it. So Liz and I had started with chatting about what our kind of memories were of design school, and I wonder if you could share uh, what you remember. Yeah, so I graduated from Massachusetts College of Art and Design. At the time, it was just Massachusetts College of Art, and um, most of my memories. It's funny, I had a bit of a weird uh, student life as far as being a, being a student, because I also ran a lot of the clubs and a lot of the other stuff. And I was really involved in student government and, and a lot of those things. So I spent a lot of my time. Um, I remember the studio, but I actually didn't spend as much of my time in studio as a lot of other students tend to, um, because we had studio spaces back in my dorm. And so I did a lot of work, uh, there. And then I did a lot of running around at the studio and a lot of event coordination and, it's one of the things that ended up leading me to IDSA, which led me to Design Museum, and um, so I was on. I was kind of a, a administrator in a little. <laughs> as part of but do you think? Do you think having those like different things that you were doing during your time served you well? Do you think more people should get out of studio? I think that um, the fact that I worked while I was in school, and so I spent a lot of time outside at work, and then you know it's a balancing act because you need to make sure, especially if you're a student that you are spending the appropriate amount of time in studio doing your work. But for me, the networking aspect of it and getting to know everybody opened a lot of doors for me that just staying in studio would not. Yeah, I would strongly encourage students to, you know, not stay in studio 24-7. I think a lot of that comes down to time management and, and you know, tackling aspects of the project at the appropriate times, whatever those projects might be. Um, that said, the studio environment is fantastic. I mean, it's where you make some of your best friendships. And I have a lot of stories about trying to sneak in the studio late at night. <laughs> and I'm sure everybody else does too. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, trying to get work done, um, even when I wasn't there. So wait a second, sneak in? Were you not allowed to be there all night? Oh, no, our studio is closed at 10 p.m. So when I hear students complain about not being able to get their work done and they can stay in their studios until two or later, uh, you know, I, I often raise my eyebrow to that because we got a lot done although we did try to pull some some stuff with the security <laughs> guards we got caught a lot that's what it's worth but good mem fond memory at, 
at Syracuse, they were open all the time. So all-nighters was a common thing that people did. And I was like the one exception who got out of there by midnight and everyone thought I was leaving early. I made a very, very hard rule for myself after my freshman year at MassArt. The fact that I had to leave, I thought was beneficial for me because I, I, I swore that I would not pull any all-nighters after my freshman year because I pulled so many that I put myself in a very bad physical state. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. This is dumb. So I just got a lot better about trying to structure my work and move the ball forward um, on the projects and not get stuck in, in sort of spirals. And, you know, I think that helped me manage taking on a lot of projects at the same time. How does that, now you're on the other side and now you're creating curriculum, you're teaching. How does that inform how you teach? Well, there were a couple of key things that I took away from my time at school. And one of them was, you know, having great projects for the studios, number one. And number two was making sure that we had access to outside folks and, and making those connections happen. So for me, you know, as a faculty member and now as department chair, I spent a lot of my time trying to bring outside folks in, get my students out into the real world, whether it be through co-ops. Um, we have a fantastic co-op program uh, at Wentworth. And so that's something that we're constantly looking to bolster. Um, but also constantly pushing the envelope with new and creative studio projects so that those experiences are memorable for the students and enjoyable for the faculty. And then it also gives them, you know, something to chew on when they think about where they want to go afterwards. And then, you know, allows us to create new opportunities to connect with people outside of the school. So uh, we'll take the adventure studio that I ran last year and this year as well, which is all around outdoor uh, you know, equipment and adventure gear and that kind of stuff. Think REI, EMS, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we take the students on an overnight wilderness survival training school program. For, so awesome. and, and so, you know, when I think about, man, what would have been cool when I was in school? We didn't. Do yeah. That. Um, and, and, you know, try to make sure that it doesn't cost the students a lot and work with partners to try and make sure we can promote that stuff. And the work. But that makes it more real, right? I mean, oh, that's, totally. I think one challenge in design school that I remember too is, all, you know, all the projects are, you know, fake, <laughs> you know, they're speculative of, you know, and I, I went to school long enough ago that even the degree of like user research, you know, it was like, we're just designing based on our ideas. And it was like, well, then that kind of limits yeah. the design process to a degree. So how do you make sure that the students are like taking what they're experiencing in those really unique opportunities and then applying that to their projects? Well, you know, the, the, our co-ops are required co-ops, so they have to do uh, a couple of them over their time at the school. And oftentimes when they come back from co-op, they bring with them back to the program a whole bunch of new skills that they're excited and eager to apply to the projects because they know that stuff now, right? And they want to show people that they know that stuff, which is always good. Um, like I said, you know, we, we're constantly trying to create projects that will not only reinforce the lessons that the students have learned prior, um, and I think that's one of the, the big insights that a lot of students tend to not see initially, but by the time they're seniors, it kind of all clicks into place, hopefully before then, but is that everything that we've been doing from the time that they're freshmen all the way to, the, to their graduation date and beyond, it compounds, right? So now that we're, we're remote learning, it's created a scenario where a lot of upperclassmen have to think about the skills that they maybe left behind at the end of sophomore year, you know, that they didn't think about actively, that just kind of becomes second nature. Um, but now they have to actively think about, okay, remember when we were using, you know, the Bristol stuff to do prototypes, because we don't have a shop right now. So all that stuff comes into play again. Um, so I think on that side of it, th those are the kinds of things that we want to make sure are constantly being reinforced. And to answer your question, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that the students are applying those things? 
we actively structure the project so that they have to use that stuff. So it's a lot of, you know, cultivation on the faculty side to think about how does this project going to hit on these key learning objectives and how is it going to create something that's going to push the students to come up with some new stuff or learn some new skills or, you know, focus on an area that they hadn't necessarily focused before. And that comes back to us offering, you know, new and unique uh, studio opportunities, but also creating those partnerships with outside folks that can make that thing real. And we've got some really exciting partnerships coming up that I can't talk about yet, but <laughs> eventually I will. <laughs> the studio piece, um, you know, we're kind of using that term a lot. And someone, you know, our listeners who might not even know how design school yeah. is set up, I wonder if we could take a step back and not, not to go so deep, you know, into the minutia of the program but can you give us kind of like a high level of the at least at Wentworth the the high level steps that a design student is going through in terms of like you said compounding you know starting sure, freshman yeah, year yeah. say easy so the 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 freshman year and the sophomore year are really foundational years so uh, as of right now our freshmen don't have studio space they sort of have shared cooperative working space it's like flex space but once you become a sophomore you get a dedicated studio space which is a desk and some cabinets and, and a space for you to be able to store your work and it's sort of your office or home away from home um, the the first two years are foundational so we focus a lot on the basic design principles composition color craft uh, visualization visual communication um, fabrication all that stuff and once you hit the junior year it things open up a little bit more. It becomes more of a, a self-directed in in some degree, to some degree, but we offer more catered studios. So for the freshman and sophomore, all the students are doing the same projects. But once it comes time to be junior or senior year, when it comes time to offer the studios, we offer a selection. So it might be that in the junior year, we offer a soft goods studio, we offer a furniture studio, uh, or a, a consumer electronics studio, and a design thinking studio. And so if you're interested in one of those things, it allows students to kind of pick and choose a path. Um, and usually the students will get their first or second choice. We're pretty good about that. And then uh, we offer a, a, a come, you know, second semester junior, same deal. And then in the senior year, things start to open up even more. And that's when they start getting into their senior thesis projects, which are very independently directed. Um, and uh, it's oftentimes the most, you know, comprehensive project that a student takes on during their tenure at, uh, at Wentworth. We talked a little bit about remote, and I guess I'm wondering what you're hearing from your students yeah. to begin with, and like what are they saying, and then let's get into some of the thoughts around, um, you know, how we can teach design remotely. And I want to hit this again with with Jason, but what are you hearing from your students? So you know, I think at at a high level, the fact that we had to go remote, many of the faculty that work at Wentworth have worked freelance before, so us working from home felt sort of second nature in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, if you've worked in any professional capacity and you've had to work with folks overseas or you're used to sending models back and forth or, you know, mocking things up or, you know, annotating CAD files and stuff, that's all very common. So for us, when it came time to make this switch, we did it relatively quickly and we were able to adapt a lot of the curriculum to do that. Um, now it didn't, it didn't hurt that we were already halfway through the semester. So we were sort of on the tail end of some of the projects. I think that helped with the transition for the students that were on campus. Now we had juniors that were off campus at co-op and they're coming back in the summer. Wentworth goes all year round and we have sort of a rotating um, when some students are away on co-op, other students are on campus. When uh, the juniors are coming back now, it's going to be starting from 
scratch online. They haven't experienced this yet, especially if they didn't finish their co-op up online. Um, but that is all, that also means that the faculty have had time to figure out how to, you know, we sort of had a dry run for this and we were able to, you know, make the studio courses that we're going to have moving forward be very much tailored for an online experience. Um, now, what that means is that we won't be able to do as much prototyping. Wentworth's very much a hands-on prototyping place. We have some of the best shop facilities I've ever seen, and the students learn how to use all of those tools. We're not going to be able to do that now. So a lot of students are disappointed that that's not going to be part of it. But I would say, and maybe it's, I'm just not hearing it, but the students that I have talked to, and I talk to a lot of them, um, is that you know they understand the situation. They, they feel like they're getting uh, a fair amount out of the the program, despite the fact that we were remote and they've been relatively, you know, um, at least I don't want to say thankful, but, you know, they've been appreciative of the fact that we've put in so much additional time as faculty to make sure that that works. And I'll tell you, I spend a lot of my time on zoom calls now with students, individual students, groups of students. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe they're getting like more tailored, you know, conversation at this point, which is kind of interesting. So one thing that I'm, I keep on trying to figure out is so much learning happens from your peers, right? And it's not mm. just like in a in a structured setting. It's in those, you know, moments when you're at studio and you look over and you see somebody else working on something, you get to see their process, you get to watch how they're, you know, they may not be your friend, but you're able to still learn from them. It's not like I'm right. giving them a call and asking like, how'd you work through this process? So how does that fit in? I still, I just can't figure out that one piece. That has been probably the biggest challenge is just not being together in the studio. One of the things that I recommend my students do is, you know, hop on Zoom calls on your own. It's not the same, but it does help. It does help with, with some of that, you know, being able to share. You know, I think about, Sam, when we were in school and Liz, like we didn't have this technology. Like we, we've come so far in such a short period of time that you can do a lot of this stuff now. Um, you know, I'm excited to see what's going to happen moving forward with virtual reality and augmented reality. And you can share physical spaces together, even though you're miles apart. You know, I, I'm, I'm particularly excited about what avenues that's going to open up and opportunities that's going to create down the road. And I think we'll get there pretty quickly. As of right now, you know, I think the ability to like take a break and go down the street and get a cup of coffee and talk about stuff uh, d doesn't happen. Right. And that's that that was for me was even more important than sitting, you know, next to each other working and seeing something that somebody was doing on the other side of the room. For me, it was sort of in that break those break periods where you could get together and create those bonds that were gonna then, you know, potentially feed a job opportunity down the road, or you're building those friendships and that kind of stuff that's more on the social side, um, that I think people are going to start lacking a little bit. I do worry about, you know, if this continues into the fall as a freshman, if you're going to finish high school, you finish graduated high school, you go home for the summer, and then you go to your first day of college and you're still at home. Like, and, and that's going to be a really difficult thing to, I think, get over. Um, and I'm, I'm actually more worried about that than anything that's going to happen over the next three months. So last question what are you most excited about in your new position and what should people be looking out for from WIT industrial design? Uh, so I think for me, it's going to be really focused on cultivating those outside partnerships. Um, you know, I think bringing that real world experience into the classroom is going to be able to add a new level. We're already doing it, but I think we can do it even more. Um, so I'm going to be spending a lot of my time on that to, to engage with outside folks and really create those cross collaborative opportunities for the students. 
Um, and I think, you know, we have a very rigid sort of progression of classes. And I think one of the things I want to look at is how can we maybe loosen that up a little bit um, and create a little bit more flexibility. That's going to be tough to do because there's sort of a larger system at work there. But I do think that that's going to, you know, when we start thinking about value and for me, you know, when I talk to parents or when I talk to students about are making sure they're getting what they feel like is valuable out of the experience. Um, and I talk to them about what those things are. A lot of it comes down to job security, right? When you leave, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so for me, it's, it's creating, you know, pathways to success. Makes sense. Thanks so much, Derek. Loved having you. Hey, thank you. Listeners, check out Derek's work on Instagram at Derek Cassio. He routinely does live sketching sessions and you can see his full Design Museum live sketch event on our website and check out wit.edu for more information about Wentworth Institute of Technology. Derek, stay with us. Love to have you join our conversation with Jason Schupach from Arizona State University. Design is Everywhere is brought to you by members like you. Every member receives Design Museum Magazine, our must-have quarterly print and digital publication about design impact. It's how we can bring the Design Museum directly to your door. You don't even have to leave the house. It'll come to you. Each issue contains stories from creative thought leaders on how they're using design to change the world. Yeah, some past stories include Turning the Inside Out, The Workplace Meets Mother Nature by Lee Stringer, and interviews with design leaders like Kat Holmes, Senior VP of Design and UX at Salesforce. Design Museum Magazine is design inspiration you can hold in your hands. Visit designmuseummagazine.org to subscribe today for just $3 per month. That's $3 per month that we bring the world of design to your doorstep. Check it out at designmuseummagazine.org today. And we're back, and we have another special guest joining us. Jason Schupach is the director of the design school at Arizona State University. Before that, he was the design director at the National Endowment for the Arts. And Derek and I first connected with Jason when he was the creative economy director in Massachusetts. He was incredibly supportive of our budding little design museum and really made a difference for us as we were just starting out. Jason, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. It's great to see you guys. I'm so, so, so thrilled to be here. So let's just start straight out. You know, we talked a little bit about this with Derek, but, you know, the students, it's a tough time for them. I'm wondering, you're such a positive guy. How are you keeping morale up at ASU? You know, it's not very hard to do at ASU because it's such an innovative place. Um, just, I'm going to humble brag for a second. Go for it. <laughs> um, you know, Arizona State has been ranked the most innovative university in the country for five years in a row. We already had a lot of online and what we call enhanced in-person learning. And now, um, so I think we were really well prepared to do this. It's not that we aren't without our troubles. Everybody's had their trials and tribulations with this. And because ASU has a focus on bringing on students based on um, who we can include and not who we can exclude, which is really the basis of how a lot of universities let people in is kind of, you know, we're good because we exclude so many people. We're an inclusion university, and so we have a lot of students that are diverse by economic class, by race, by you know any kind of diversity you could imagine. So the you know we all know that this crisis is hitting people and kind of exacerbating existing inequalities. Like for example, in the Navajo Nation here is the third highest infection rate in the country after New York and New Jersey, and we have the largest number of Indigenous and Navajo students of any design school in the country. So. We have some very real issues that are going on in the school, but 
um, you know, everyone's kind of just stepped up. I mean, this is the Wild West. People just get stuff done. Yeah, it definitely helps that we're all in it together. That's for sure. And that's great to hear the students stepping up. If we could step back for a minute, you've had this amazing career and Derek and I are really lucky to have your support early on. But I'm curious, you know, so you've been at ASU since 2017, is that? Yeah, three years. Three years. What drew you initially to the opportunity? Well, I'm still shocked someone put me in charge of a school, (laughs) as you probably were too. Uh, My career has always been about um, how can I create systems that help support creative people to do the amazing work they do, right? Like that is my creative practice is like working within big systems to kind of help support creative people. And so a lot of it is about like, how do we also make the world better and, you know, fight the injustices in the world. So, you know, ASU as a basis, as a school kind of has that written in stone, literally, (laughs) that it's this inclusionary school, that it's there to change the world. I was really done with being a funder and in government. I'd done it for 15 years and was, and, you know, when they came calling and headhunted me, I thought, wow, that's a really interesting thing to go do. And to me, I always like the idea of being able to scale the work. And so, you know, ASU has 50,000 online students and deals with Starbucks. And we have all these different ways that people can access education there. And I thought, well, look, I've been so honored to work with people like you guys and all these other people who have all this intelligence to bring to students. And I thought if I can take all that experience and bring it into the educational field and scale it in a serious way, that sounded really, really appealing. You guys have been doing awesome stuff. And I think what, you know, I was really excited when you took the job and excited to see a design school under your leadership. And one of the first things you did that I saw again from afar was this listening tour. I think it was called like the redesign or redesign school. Yeah, it's redesign.school. That's the website where you can see the listening tour. Um, Look, I'm from the South. My mom used to call me the mouth of the South because I like to talk a lot. And honey, she used to say, you have two ears and one mouth. So shut up and listen. I had a lot of connections. I thought it was time for us to go out and talk to people. So this, you know, the way you do everything in an institution is you make it faculty driven and staff driven and student driven. So we had those folks identify the questions that they wanted to ask. We had them identify people they wanted to hear from. And then we did a, you know, using kind of my initial pot of money they gave me whenever you start a job like this, they give you a little pot of money. We did a listening tour around the country and we did a listening tour locally to just anybody we could we we could talk to. So we did one at the National Building Museum. We did one at the National Design Museum in New York. We did one in LA, San Francisco. We did one with lots of local constituents and just were looking for themes, right? For where we needed to be changing our education. And then we spent a year kind of really trying to adjust the curriculum and doing that. And then now that's all kind of coming to fruition. I'd say the number one thing that we heard in that was the need for to bring more human and soft skill sets into the classroom. You know, everyone kept saying that we're on this kind of curve of change. There's no way to really predict, you know, exactly where the design world's going to go. And it's so important now to understand how to publicly speak, work on teams, understand social and economic issues. And I think in schools a lot, people just kind of say, oh, they get that in studio, right? They got that in their research in studio or they have to speak in studio. And you're like, well, did you show them any of the 4,000 TED Talks on public speaking, you know, and or and teach anything about those skill sets? Like, why did I have to wait till I was 35 to go to a leadership training to learn any of that stuff? Right. And so, and be privileged enough to be given that leadership training to learn that stuff. And so like, if we're truly going to empower all these kids, this diverse population to be the future of the design field, let's teach them that stuff. 
how does it weave into the curriculum? Is it a separate course? Is it integrated into not just studio, but other classes as well? You know, half the battle is just like telling them that this is what we're working on and really communicating it. What we've done is had a group of faculty working on this idea. And what they've come up with is this idea of stackable learning assets, different kind of learning assets they need to learn to actually become relatively well-versed in this topic. Let's just take public speaking. Maybe there's six lectures and exercises they need to do. So what we're saying to our faculty is, we think this the faculty committee has come up with this and we'll be working on it with the faculty and saying, look, these are the important things. Here's the resources to find what we think are the best trainings on this. Like it's only been 15 bazillion Harvard Business School cases written on some of this stuff emotional intelligence, empathy, all that stuff. We're saying you figure out where you put in your curriculum, right? Here's what we think is important. And the truth is, if you look at the accreditors, and I think Derek was kind of hinting at this, like we are very beholden to accreditors sometimes for our programs. They're already asking for this. They want us to teach it, right? And we've been kind of, at least in our school, in some of our programs, we've been very direct about it. And some of them we've been sort of like, well, we're sort of kind of meeting it here. So like, let's just teach it, right? So, um, there's lots of ways to do it. It doesn't, and you, the good thing is to just give the faculty the freedom to figure out where they want to put it, right? And how it fits into what they've already done. And that's what we want to do. Yeah, actually that, so, so Jason, you're absolutely right. You know, the accrediting bodies, that structure that you're, we're sort of operating under, the fact that the, the, the industry for us is changing so dramatically and the skill set is growing, but the time stays the same. How do you guys at ASU manage the fact that it seems like our students need to learn more and more and more and we're ha- we still have the same you know time frame to do it, right? And so I think that's a great question. It was really interesting when we were having these listening around tables. I can't remember who said it. It may have been Cheryl Heller, who's now who I recruited to ASU. Um, she, it was someone who said in a lot of industries, it's very clearly understood what you're supposed to learn in school and what's expected in the industry. So, like, take law or medicine. There is a very clear progression, right? And industry works with the schools to understand where the line is, right? Like there's a whole thing around medicine and what's going to be a medical school and what they're expected to keep up with and what they will learn in their residency. And we don't really have that in design. And and that makes it really tricky because in a lot of our conversations, people were like, we need you to teach them this. They need to come in more prepared to be flexible and learn all these like World Economic Forum top skill sets, you know, negotiation, all this stuff. And so we are trying to kind of figure out what is reasonable for us to bring into the classroom. I do think with these new technologies, I mean, like one thing we've learned through this remote learning is, my God, do we ever need to do a long lecture in a classroom again? Or could it just have been recorded and then we could use work time to do other things? And so um, it's, I think we haven't fully mobilized the technology we have in front of us, which might help save with time. And I think we also just have to be honest about, you know, our, making them stay into studio all night to make a project absolutely perfect and holding students beholden to that perfection. Is that actually the right thing to teach them or is there, should we be incorporating some of this other stuff? The name of the game, I think for the future of design education is flexibility. And it's the one thing when you have this culture of studio, which I think it's fine to be sacrosanct about. I mean, I sat in studios for hours, right? And that I loved it. You know, I didn't mind, um, the community in there, didn't, I love doing the work. Sometimes it does just take that long. But it is something that needs to be reconsidered. And I think, um, especially for the mental health of many of our students. And so uh, I think it's it's a tricky, changing game. I think we will see a transition into something new in the next few years, because I really think the Gen Xers and the Millennials are just not into it. 
I completely agree, Jason. You know, I think the, the the flexibility piece, you talked about the soft skills, and that's something that we're very cognizant of as well. And I think we see it when the students do present the work. So, you know, there's a situation where they spend 100 hours in the studio, they're not using their time well, the project isn't great, and then they can't talk about it. And you're like, this is not working. When you think about, you know, when, when they talk about design having a seat at the table, right? You hear this all the time when they talk about it in the business aspect of it, and they talk about where designers are going to go once they finish you know, they get a little bit higher up in their career. How do you engage with your alumni? How do you talk to the, un the, the current students about, you know, where they're going to be in five or 10 years? So how they're going to compound the skill sets that they're taking out of the studio, building those soft skills up when they get into the business space and, and then re-engaging with them again. How, do, how does ASU handle that? That's a great question. We, of course, have pro practice classes that prepare them for immediately leaving school and going into a typical environment. We haven't required internships, all the usual jazz. I think what's the more interesting conversation to me right now is, is about what the future of work is and where design fits within it and how we position our designers to use a design mind in a multitude of ways in the future of work. I think it's no joke that automation is coming. Before the world changed in the last four months, the big conversation was automation is coming. I sat in a meeting um, just for you, Liz, with architecture, I sat in a meeting once and watched uh, some AI design residential buildings with just about 20 inputs. Um, uh, in about four minutes, they designed about 400 options all the way up to construction drawings. So, you know, like that's, it's not coming, it's here now, right? So um, I think it's about positioning our students and their intelligences and the, the, the fundamental beauty of the basis of a design education and the shaping of a design mind about how to learn other kinds of intelligences to be able to be in the world in a multitude of ways and what and wherever the cha change of the working world is going to take us. Like right now, you could sit around and just be so defeated or you could sit around and go, there's unbelievable opportunity for design to lean in to figure out the new world we need to build right now. And, you know, I mean, Instagram didn't even exist 10 years ago. Some people went out and decided to build that. It completely changed the way that designers and artists live in the world. Like, what is the next thing that needs to be built right now? That's what I want to see my students do. That's what I want to prepare my students to do. I don't want them to think, oh, I'm just hopefully going to go get a job in a firm. I want you to build the next future firm. But at the same time, we, you know, we teach, it's the biggest design school in the country. We have almost 2,000 students. We also do need to prepare some of those students to just go get the typical job in the firm. So I do think the fundamental basis of what we're teaching them, like the traditional design career, we already do that well. We already have people working in firms all over the world. I'm interested in how we change that also to prepare them for the world where the where the world is just going to be changed right that is like it's no joke that the rate of change is only going to increase and so you've got to prepare people to be flexibly minded and to be prepared to live in that change and i think that that does require some change when it changes to the curriculum i th to me it's like design has never had a more important role as usual i, I hate when people say like Design needs, a, design needs a seat at the table. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like the creators of Airbnb were designers. We, we have the seat, we're already there. Like stop saying that. And just like every leader in the world pulls on Bruce Mao to do stuff. Like, I mean that, like stop it. The last 20 years we won that battle. Like, and like just prepare our students to be in that room. I love that. I feel like that ties so well into my last question. It's for both of you guys of, you know, we've got some, a lot of high school students right now who are, making a decision of, you know, where they want to go to school, what they want to do, what they want to pursue, what they want to learn about. And it's really uncertain time. So 
what would you say to those students about why they should or shouldn't pursue design and what questions they should be asking themselves? Like Jason said, if you want to pursue a career in design, figuring out what design you know, what discipline design interests you and how you want to craft that yourself, making sure that the program you're going to go into feels like the right fit for you, the location's good, and, and making sure that there's flexibility in there for you to be able to, you know, create or customize that education a little bit to pursue that changing world that Jason's talking about. So are you interested in the digital aspects of it? Do you want to do more of the physical stuff? Do you want to do a blend of both? Um, you know, I think you have to look long and hard at that stuff before you just dive in that's kind of how I found myself in my first situation and realized like, Oh, I did not do enough research here. Uh, and like, it wasn't the right choice. So I think, you know, I wouldn't, I would go into this, not afraid. I think that it's, you know, I'm like Jason, very much an optimist about where we're going to go with everything. Um, the human race has encountered unbelievable challenges over millennia and we've figured it out. So the fact that we're here at all is, is crazy, but, um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity and, you know, you just got to apply yourself to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's way too much pressure that people put on themselves to know who they're going to be at their freshman year of school. I was going to be a high school band teacher, right? <laughs> and then I studied uh, public health. I was an environmental water chemist. And then I went to a city planning school and was like, I want to do city design. And then I was like, I don't, not a very good designer. So I'm gonna do policy. And then, you know, I mean, now I run to school. It's crazy. So I do think that you should follow your passion. Is There's been tons of studies that have shown that students who get a creative career degree have a the highest job satisfaction of anyone by far, except for like firefighters or something. So, you know, if you're interested in creativity at all, you should try it. You know, all the facts show that if you get a college degree, a bachelorate degree, it is the number one determinant for people moving out of poverty, right? So... That is why we have this access mission at ASU is we were trying to move people out of poverty and um, and, and the research mission of the university and every other reason. But that's one of the reasons we have this access mission. And, um, you know, it's no joke that it, it matters, right? It matters in the world. And, you know, there's lots of structures in the world that I don't like. And yes, I would like to see revolution, but it's not the world we live in, whatever. Like the bachelor's degree matters, right? So like getting it someday matters, you know, your rate that you finish it at, what you're interested in, you know, explore all different kinds of things. If you're interested in design at all, there's a bazillion online sample design courses you can take and see if you like them. There's a, I mean, you can just test, test, test. Now that's the beauty of the world we live in. You kind of have no excuse to not try it if you're interested, even the littlest bit. And if your parents say to you, that's not a real career, you can say what I said. Hey, the guys that founded Airbnb are designers, you know, or something. I mean, like every single one of my students gets a job, right? So, and it's, it is a career. So I would just say, go for it. I mean, you kind of have nothing. I understand for many people who are feeling financial pressures right now, especially people who have lost everything. One in five Americans are out of work. It's terrifying. It can feel terrifying to invest in something that's not a guaranteed, but guess what? The world's not going to be guaranteed, period. Follow your passion. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. Listeners, check out the ASU Design School's website at design.asu.edu for more information. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Liz, why don't you share yours first? All right. 
Yeah. So two of my best friends were supposed to get married this month, and one of them actually works at the CDC, and the other is a really talented graphic designer. So when they had to postpone their wedding because of COVID-19, they were actually well-positioned. And all of this is top of mind because I just received their change the date in the mail, which is a fun play on a save the date, uh, which they sent out over six months ago. But what really set it apart is that they updated the illustration that they had created of themselves and they added face masks, which I thought was brilliant because it was informative and clever and it oddly put a smile on my face even during a really tough situation. So that's my example of when a public health crisis meets wedding season meets great design. My weekly dose of good design is a data visualization or more like a, it's like a playable simulation of the COVID-19 outbreak. It's called Outbreak, and it was posted by Kevin Simler back in March. Basically, Simler tried to simplify the model of the disease, can start to see how an epidemic can unfold. And so what it is is a series of simple grid-based interactions. So there's a grid, and then each cell of the grid is a person. And you can adjust things with these little sliders of like the transmission rate, days of incubation, the travel radius of like how far people travel outside their home and the number of people they encounter per day. And then you hit play and you see how this kind of unfolds on the on the grid. And it's just very simple. And for anyone who's like, should I be staying home or should I not, should I wear my face mask? It really hits home what the simplest things can do to like limit the exposure, how that helps um, with the with the pandemic. So I love the power of data visualizations to help us understand these complex situations. And this website really helped me understand COVID-19. You can check it out uh, at meltingasphalt.com. Derek, you are up. We are at home now and have been at home for quite some time. Um, I was not traditionally the person that was into yard work and, and landscaping, but I've got time now, a little bit. And, and, you know, I'm in the house, so we're working <laughs> on it. And uh, so I've recently invested in some of the Ego uh, battery-powered, um, you know, I, I love them. They've got a lawnmower and a weed whacker, and, and you know, it sounds pretty provincial, but uh, I'm, I'm sold. I'm all in on these. <laughs> They've been really fantastic. It helped me, like, landscape the yard and get the work done. You know, my lawn was huge because I haven't touched it in forever. You know, I've barely gone outside, and I went outside the other day and said, I got to get outside and do something. So mentally, it was really nice to get out there and do that, and I needed that break. And those things made it super easy to do. So, you know, for me as a product designer, when I think about the checkbox of, of things that I want my products to do for me and it being system-based and everything, I loved it. Thank you both for sharing. Listeners, share your weekly dose of good design with us on social media. We would really love to hear what you're excited about each week. Thank you again to Derek Cassio and Jason Schupach for joining us this week. You'll find links on our show page with some of the resources we talked about today. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. And be sure to get your tickets for our live virtual event with Open Source Wellness on May 26th. Yes, and our 50-50 challenge is still on. So far, we have members from 37 states and 14 countries. Again, remember that our goal is to have members from all 50 states and 50 countries. So we're more than halfway there, which is awesome. Uh, And on another note, we know that this month there will be a lot of new grads who are entering on certain times and could use some design inspiration. So with the support of our amazing board of directors, for every new member that signs up, 
we're going to be giving a student or a recent grad a free one-year membership to Design Museum Everywhere. That's so awesome. We can continue the conversation online. Like us, follow us on Twitter. We're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And remember to subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to rate us. That really helps people find the new show. We'd really appreciate it. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everyone.